Hi folks, welcome to episode 10 of Books with Jen. If you're new to my podcast, it's where I sit down with an author for about half an hour, 45 minutes, and we have a chat. And there's no visual, just audio, so you can listen to it while you're doing other things. If you would prefer to download this episode rather than stream it, you can do that on my website. So go to jen-campbell.com forward slash podcast. Today I am talking with Ed Brook Hitching who is a fellow writer. He's also agented by my agent Charlie Campbell and Ed has written a series of fantastic books on weird historical facts. He is such a fascinating person to speak to because he has so many things in his brain and all of them are interesting. So I hope that you guys enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. We talk about both of his books Fox Tossing, Octopus Wrestling and Other Forgotten Sports which is about forgotten sports in history and his most recent book The Phantom Atlas which is about strange places that don't actually exist but are on old maps um, and we also talk about the history of the circus and also his involvement with QI because he works with them and what it's like to write a non-fiction book and how you pitch that and get it out into the world we talk about a lot of stuff so grab a cup of tea and pull up a seat so I'm in Ed's lovely house I'd quite like to move in is that okay yeah and thank you for calling it a house <laughs> well, it's okay, two fine. bed apartment okay an apartment an apartment mm. it's very very lovely <laughs> and we're hoping that the neighbours don't start hammering on the floor which is apparently what they like to do when you try and record there, anything there's a real probability yeah yeah I don't know hopefully they got all their Ikea stuff done but, uh, <laughs> who hammers on their floor um, I think when people own a, like a top floor flat, they know how to drive their neighbours crazy. Oh, I see. Um, and there are the weirdest sounds that come from upstairs. And I remember seeing one uh, YouTube video of mm. someone suffering the same thing and they dramatised what they thought was happening. And it was just people sort of taking out a bag of chains and happily just rolling it along the floor, <laughs> doing all this weird stuff just to annoy everyone. That's definitely what happens. It's yeah. a London thing in particular as well. Everyone's just right on top of each other. Yeah. So... Neighbours aside, yes. let's talk about writing. What is your background? How did you get into writing books in the first place? Um, I, I, I sort of did it as a, as a hobby. Like I'm, I, I think I'm, it's a pretty standard story because I'm mm. one of these people as a teenager. I was always writing in notebooks, you know, terrible poetry. And why do All I... All the angsty yeah, stuff. Yeah, really angsty, long hair. Why do I feel alone in a crowd? <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, but I loved making things. My dad is a rare book dealer mm. and I just grew up in a house that was sometimes literally made of books. Yeah. And he specialised in um, exploration, mm-hmm. British exploration and travel. Um, so I always loved books and my parents were amazing. Uh, we didn't have all the money in the world but whenever I asked for a book or we were in a shop they said you can go and choose a book. Okay. So books were the one thing we were always allowed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah and then I just started writing terrible fiction and I had this uh, um, I, this point where I was in a pub. I was in my mid-twenties. I really wanted to get a book published. I needed some kind of validation. I needed to make mm. a mark. I was in a boring office job at a post-production company editing corporate videos and mm. things. And I realized, okay, be honest. If you're not the greatest, if you're not the next Hemingway, um, what is your best chance of getting a book published? And to me, the obvious thing was... You, uh, to write a book that no one had done. Yep. Um, and to do that, you turn to non-fiction, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's just easier. Um, easier to Google, to see what Easier to Google, covered. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I went through. I just went through Amazon and places looking for gaps, which is not the best way to do it. No, well, I don't know. Um, I think it's an interesting way to do it, because you have you to think? make it marketable. And when you, when you approach publishers, you have to have a unique selling point. And if your thing is, yeah. I've looked, no one's written this book, that's a pretty good point to have. 
Yeah, I suppose, yeah, the USP yes. is something um, people throw around. And price point is the other weird phrase you hear a lot from publishers, which literally just means the price. Yeah. I don't know why they have to call it the <laughs> price point. Um, I think it's just to make it sound more other, like they, they are in a secret true. that you don't know about. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. you just say, yes, okay. Not all of them have lenses in their glasses. They just <laughs> wear the frames. And, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, it's something that can help you. Um, and... And I think the other thing that, so I was going through that and then I was also obsessed with QI. I watched a lot of QI mm-hmm. and I loved the things I really loved. I never really responded to science and all the important stuff, but quirky history, curious history. When you see things from history, and this now still gets me really excited. Um, and I can show you some things on the walls yeah, that, that look like modern prints. Um, when you see something that just looks like it shouldn't have existed there Mm -hmm. it's a complete uh, anomaly it's like a time traveler put something there that gets me profoundly excited um and qi was very good at that um and so that's what that's the kind of book i wanted to 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 write so i began collecting and literally we were talking about dragons Mm -hmm. um i began viewing it like you're sitting on a pile of gold imagine when that dragon first started he maybe had a couple of bits of loose change Mm -hmm. and he started raking it in and (laughs) incinerating villages but he was building his savings account and with trivia especially nowadays it's um, accrued a much higher value that especially with the internet has democratized research anyone can research to an extent and websites like Atlas Obscura, Mental Floss have popped up. And this um, surprising information that no one really knows about has become more valuable. So now you're in competition with not just authors, but mm-hmm. um, the, the internet and people just on Twitter sharing interesting things that they see. Um, so it was it was very prevalent and it's all around. And I wanted so I started scooping it all up, making notes, saving things. Uh, and then I came across... Um, I was reading about uh, 18th century German hunting because I was looking for something that maybe would be of a bit weird. Were, I mean, well, right, it's been? it's yeah. In a way, it's like an obvious place to go, like the most barbaric um, things mm. that we've done to animals. Um, and then I came across this amazing illustration of uh, a Fuchsbrellen tournament, and I, I sent the snippet because my my sort of 18th century German wasn't great, but the picture was really interesting to a German friend. He translated it, and it turns out it was. Uh, an actual sport played by German aristocrats from about 1650 to mid-1700s, uh, where they would catapult foxes up into the air in a kind of grass tennis court. And it was, it's in English, it's known as fox tossing, mm-hmm. but it translates as fox bouncing or fox launching. Um, and it was so weird. I sent my notes to an antiquarian book dealer saying, do you know anything more about it? And he said, if you're trying to pull my leg, you need to f- use something a bit more convincing. <laughs> he, was, he really thought I was hoaxing him. Um, and so that's when I knew it was. And so from that, so this is a really long way no, around no, no, your no, question. No, 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 But this, I, I was thinking about it, like, how did I get to that point? I, I sat there and again in the same pub and thinking, okay, so if we know this is good, this fox tossing thing. So if this was in a book, what would the book be about? Mm-hmm. And it was obvious that it was forgotten entertainments, forgotten sports. Mm-hmm. And just a quick Google search shows that there wasn't a book on forgotten sports. Yeah. So... We I sort of ran with that. Yeah. Um, with a very lovely agent, uh, Charlie Campbell, who we... We both share him. We both share. <laughs> um, who is very much into his sport cricket above everything else, yes. I would imagine. Um, so he... Uh, when you can make Charlie's eyes light up, uh, then you know you've got something. Because if you come to him with a bad idea, he won't say, oh, that's a terrible idea. He, he just sort of starts looking around the room, maybe his shoes... 
Um, says, well, why don't you go away and think about that for a little bit yeah. and, <laughs> and email me with your thoughts, just hoping that you will realise on your own that it's yeah. a terrible idea without have him having to say it. As opposed yeah. to saying, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So if you don't get that, then you, yeah, you need yeah. to reach back for the drawing board. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then we just sort of sent it out to people. Um, we chose some of the most bizarre sports because once you latch onto a theme like that, and it's a fun theme. Yeah. The research is a dream mm-hmm. um, because you, in a way, it's it's not helpful because you can't consult other books that aren't specifically on this subject. So you're free to go anywhere, to do anything, to just choose uh, any form of history book in the hope that maybe there's a tangent that they go off on and they mention strange things. So where where did that take you to? So initially I thought, well, fox tossing, uh, other kinds of hunting, and I found some a lot of like brutal stuff which wouldn't do anyone any good yeah. bringing up um, but I, you you bounce around i mean you you've sort of experienced research haven't you it's mm. it's like um a widely scattered breadcrumb trail that sometimes gets quite frustrating there are sort of ellipses in it mm. and one question you will get in publishing meetings mm. is so why are you the person to write this well, book yes. Yes. which is yeah, I, w- I was prepared for. What was your answer? Well, <clears throat> this is the thing. I don't have a PhD. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, a, a sports historian, but I am now. Mm. Um, I think you've earned that badge. <laughs> I've earned that badge because, yes, because if someone needs to, Every now and again I get calls from like BBC Radio Sheffield and things who said, we're talking about this really stupid game and someone <laughs> gave us your name. <laughs> like, oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... Nothing, nothing's set, and you can you can make your own. The, there are gaps there, and you you can slip yourself in with with every justification. There's, um, you know, everyone sort of can be crippled by the imposter syndrome and mm. self doubt. And but that doesn't go away. I think that's something doesn't. we also have to say. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you just have to look at it. And not, not as elaborately as that, just boil it down to, have you got a good story? Have you got a good material? And can you do it justice? Mm-hmm. Um, and what more can anyone ask from you? Is it the kind of book that you would buy? Yeah. Absolutely. Then, then. And I think on top of that, just make sure you've made it the best that you possibly can. Because I completely, yeah. like, it's, it's, diff- it's a difficult line, isn't it? Because we want to say everyone can do this if they really work hard. But at the same time, also, you have to understand how the industry works yeah. and do some research and make sure that you are, um, I guess, just, just ticking all the boxes. I just have so much awe, I think, for the book industry itself and how it works as, a, as this machine. We were actually talking about this helpfully mm. before we, we yes. turned on the microphone. But um, <laughs> booksellers, I think having worked as a bookseller, just how the publishing industry then works with um, with the salespeople in their teams and then the booksellers and just how it all comes together. There are just so many people involved. I think that that is often forgot about because yeah. um, you want to make things not not secretive, but make it look easy, I suppose, because that's how industries work, that these things just happen. But there's a lot of people there. And it's, it's very exciting. I mean, from I don't know if you found this in your experience, mm. but from the moment... Uh, there's there's that agonizing process when your agents either you're waiting to hear back from your agent or they're sending it out to a publisher and then for some reason there's just it can be months of yeah. silence and you just think oh my god this is this is awful if they liked it they would have said yes mm-hmm. um, but the moment that they say yes pretty much every email you get from that point is some wonderful piece of weird good news about yeah. 
that about things you never knew, like oh, we we've we've sold it to a to a Spanish publisher. What? How did they know about it? Oh yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. Um, and it's just it's just a constant fun. It's not like a thrill ride. It's not sort of a roller coaster. No, but it's new and exciting it's, for you because it's, it's your yeah. your baby that they are paying attention to. <laughs> it's your yeah exactly. It's your baby. Um, but and but the other thing I because what you just saying reminded me that um, the other thing I noticed is this is, and it sounds pessimistic but it's not it's it's constructive it's mm. that you also have to remember and it's difficult to begin with but that no one is going to care more about your book than you do yeah. so obviously they have other books to deal with they have other demands on their time quite fairly mm-hmm. so the more you can present your idea your book as a package the more like so, for example, um, I did a book called The Phantom Atlas, which was a, a lot of maps, but it was about mistakes and places we uh, once believed were real because they were drawn on maps. And because I love maps and I'd spent years researching this, I loved antique atlases. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if the title page was adapted from one of the great atlases and yeah. things? That's that's something. It's so such a frilly extra idea mm. that the publisher and the d- designer obviously wouldn't um, be expected to go to the trouble to think of. But I just sort of photoshopped it myself as a guide and said, what about this? They didn't blink and they just go, oh, yeah, that's nice. And they just they just included it. Yeah. And, and I I've, personally, I feel it, you know, I'm pr- like it's a detail that I'm, makes the book something more to be proud of. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something. It's it's your baby. Uh, and when it's when it's out into the world, it's like you're sending your baby off to school for the first time. And you've got to make sure it's got all the uniform and it's had a good haircut. And Let's go back a step. So. Yeah. When you were writing Fox Tossing, which mm. is the best title ever, what is the full, t- full title? Fox Tossing and Octopus Wrestling. Fox Tossing, Octopus Wrestling and Other, other forgotten, forgotten Sports. sports. Yeah. So when we are pitching non-fiction books, because this is a question that I, mm. guess that's, I get asked a lot, um, what do you think generally is what is required? I see. So we need the USP, so unique selling point. Yeah. Why you're the person who should write this book. Then normally you need 10,000 words. Ish. Yeah, your proposal. It's it's funny. The proposal, I couldn't. When I was looking, I couldn't find a template mm. to follow. I had to ask Charlie to send me a couple of examples, and they were completely different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in a way, think about it from the publisher's point of view. Like, what would they want to see? Um, the one thing I've really learned, and it might not be relevant to other people's ideas, but if you can include images, yes, uh, especially if they're as beautiful as the Phantom Atlas. Right, which I'm very lucky with. If they can be eye-grabbing, I mean, I threw a lot more monsters into the Phantom Atlas than was strictly necessary. I think monsters are always necessary. Right, okay, me too. Um, And there are definitely, (laughs) there are images in there that I just have loved so much and I've excused by just adding a little sentence saying, oh, like this map that was done by the same author, which has nothing to do with the topic, but my God, is it pretty. And P.S., I liked it very much. I like it a lot. Um, So, I mean, that's something that moving forward I have uh, always incorporated I've just saturated the proposal with my favorite images to do with the topic and to be honest it's so there's so many systems in place for how you can license these images how you can get hold of them that even if you find this image that you really love it's low resolution and you you don't know exactly where you can buy it from don't worry about that what you're offering because I, I worked a lot in documentary and you have to do the same kind of proposal mm. but obviously with documentary you you can't predict what's going to happen yeah but what you do say is this is going to happen this amazing stuff is going to happen it's going to it's going to end with this message and it's going to be like a car chase and you know it's going to be great and that's what people 
people buy. Um, because it's like it, in the Phantom Atlas, isn't it? There's this amazing place, <laughs> and a third of the soil is gold, so we should yeah. all go there. We should and all go should, there. You should give me money to go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and because you're, you're a passionate writer, you know, if you're writing about this topic... Um, I know that you love it and that enthusiasm will come through um, not just in the writing but in how you curate your idea how you present it to someone Um, and so yeah when you're drawing up your non-fiction proposal um, what's amazing to me is the title how effective the title is and how easily a publisher can um, the the fire can go out if they're not a fan of the title. It mm-hmm. seems crazy. You think, oh well, they'll just give it to some people in a back room and they'll come up with like twenty other options. Yes, but they can pass on it if yeah. it has a terrible title. Mm-hmm. Um, so work your, you know, you think about the music of the title. Like I only realised recently, and I didn't do it deliberately, but the rhythm of fox tossing, octopus wrestling, and other forgotten sports mm-hmm. is is a sort of perfect sort of meter. Yes. Um, and it and it works, and you want something that's going to grab people's attention. Um, every word, every sentence should be positive and interesting, and don't be afraid afraid to use um, what seems like hyperbolic sales talk. Yeah, you know, it's it's if you read the the, the copy on jackets, um, it's always it's in a way it's the same phrases. It's indispensable, an mm-hmm. indispensable collection. It's uh, it's stupendous. It's wondrous. It's you know that's what you need to do. And take note, guys, because a lot of blurbs are written by the authors. So. Yeah, you will get an email yeah. saying, "Oh, and by the way, have you got any suggestions for the copy?" And then yes, the yes. next time you see that copy, it's on the book. Yeah, so <laughs> you know, be prepared to shout about yourself. I know it's awkward yeah. to do that, like in personal statements and stuff and CVs. You're like, "Oh my god," but you have to do it. So yeah, how yeah. great you are. Well, not. Not too much, obviously, but, you know, why this book is really important, why you're the person to write it, all of the things you hope to include. Because with a non-fiction book, you can submit a manuscript that's not completed. Generally, with fiction, with a novel, for your first novel, it's normally finished. But with non-fiction, you can say, look, I need this much time. Mm -hmm. And if travel is involved, I need this budget to research whatever it is I'm doing. Mm. Would you like to back this book? And then... Uh, an introduction, first couple of chapters, so that they can see your writing style as well. Yeah, yeah. and then sort of breaking down the other chapters that you want to include with sort of brief summaries, mm-hmm. um, and maybe some sample images at the end, mm-hmm. and intersperse them with images. Um, and uh, yeah, and then a, and the, the way to describe yourself, I know, that you're, like you said, it's sort of awkward selling your baby and selling mm. yourself. Um, but if you let's say you don't have like a sort of extensive academic background and you're wondering what to put in it um just think of how your bio would give your book a bit more color so i had very little to say other than i used to work in documentary so i included a few other random things from my cv this probably isn't good advice but it was (laughs) edward has worked at an ice cream factory at a newspaper at a theater i wanted to sound like i was a bit mad yeah (laughs) Um, and that it would be fun because it would be as i was eccentric as the material Mm -hmm. um so yeah brand yourself as well yeah to to an extent yeah Um, because the publisher also they want to meet you because they want to know there there are some really weird people who write books Mm -hmm. and writing books can make you weirder yeah Uh, we've met lots of authors (laughs) yes (laughs) um and i felt it myself when i've spent a long time locked up writing i i've looked up and think i'm i think i'm going a bit strange yeah stay social yeah but obviously the first point of call is to find an agent i mean when you talk to people how they found their agent agents you have to understand that agents are on the lookout. They oh, yeah. want to find good stuff. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not bothered if you submit something. They don't think, oh, it's adding to my inbox. 
It's their job. Like it's they their need, job. They need it. Yeah. And they love finding something that they're excited by, mm-hmm. something new and different. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're looking for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, to an extent, you have to sort of send up the signal and make yeah. sure they see you. Also, there's a video on my channel where Charlie and I, Charlie and I talk about getting an agent and stuff. So if you want right, to know yeah. more about that, you can head over there. I'll leave it linked in the description box. Um, okay, so you wrote about fox tossing and octopus wrestling. Mm. And once it was out in the world, what did you want to do after that? At what point did you start working for QI? Because we should talk about that too. Yeah. Because uh, that's really cool because you were saying that you loved it and now you work for QI. I know, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's a weird full circle thing. Um, so after that book came out, at some point, I think one of the elves was given it to him by his mum for Christmas. Saying, oh, this is the kind of thing you'd like. And someone else had already given it to him, so he couldn't help but read it. Um, and they apparently used some of the material in the show. <clears throat> and then I was just called in for a, uh, a discussion because they're always on the lookout for like-minded people. Mm. Um, and we had this, like, the most fun interview because we were just talking About interesting things facts. that we yeah. found. Yeah, and they wanted to know, like, how deep your library was of these this kind of material. And so we were talking about islands that appeared and disappeared and... Um, and they were wanted to know how, like, what your research process is. Because if someone says, oh, I just Google it, um, you, you're you going to end up mostly finding things that, you know, other people will easily find as yes. well. Um, and so it was, yeah, I was talking to them about, you know, using Google Scholar and things like that to get sort of deeper and mine closer to primary sources and mm. things. Um, and then it was just, oh, well, you know, it was nice to meet you. And then the months would go by because... The production period of QI is four months of the year. And then they're editing it, but not everyone's involved with that over the summer. Um, so there was a long period of silence. And then just before um, December, after my February interview, mm-hmm. they said, uh, yeah, do you want to come in? And sat in the meeting and there was my sort of comedy heroes, of uh, John Lloyd and um, Sandy Toxvig was very lovely. She gave me a great big hug. Hello, darling. And here's a... Here's a a Danish candle, scented candle for you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, and then it just, it is the most fun job imaginable because you sit down at this in this long meeting in a room that's just filled with books with the smartest, the funniest people mm-hmm. working in television. And you say, okay, the letter for this year is, oh, it's like a Dr. Seuss story or something. Mm. Like, what are we going to do with O? Um, and there's just a whiteboard. And up goes, uh, you know, occult oceans. And slowly you divide them into themes for episodes. And all the elves get allocated their own special episode. They're the sort of head writer of. And then you contribute to to all the other episodes. But the job is, I didn't realise it, it's 24 hours in the sense that your brain is always on. And Mm. you go out into the world and all you hear um, is oh 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 and you're looking around like uh, 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 opossums uh, and you, everything you see beginning with oh you make a note of I was tearing things out of newspapers I looked insane on the tube stuffing them to my pockets um, and you've become that writer now you were hoping to look eccentric yeah. now you're just yeah. eccentric yeah and that's the true eccentric isn't it yeah. the one who's not trying who has yes. no idea quite how weirdly people view him yeah um, and and the great thing is, as well, it's material that's separate to the stuff I'm writing about. It'd be very lazy to cannibalise my own research, mm. and, you know, and you can work from home and do it. Um, and so, yeah, you gradually draw up these scripts. I, I grabbed the occult, which I was lucky to get. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, I've, I've got some amazing stuff. So hopefully that'll be broadcast around Halloween, maybe, I would have thought. Mm. Uh, Russell Brand, Noel Fielding and Ashleen B, who's the funniest person I've ever met. Um, 
and yet you get to everyone's asking your opinion is this is this what we should do what about this prop and you were just some schmuck at a desk who yeah. sort of uh, you know was reading books about um, automatic writing um, people who channeled mediums who channeled dead authors mm-hmm. so technically so that's one of the things in the episode um, is that technically Shakespeare's last work according to the British Library filing system it was published in 1920 it was written in 1920 right. um, so things like that. Um, and it's just fantastically exciting that something that influenced me, I get to be brought into the fold of. Yeah. It's bizarre. When you're thinking, sitting there think, having that imposter syndrome, thinking, I can't believe my luck right yeah. now. And, yeah. And contradicting people, saying, oh, actually, no, that was in 1850. And then you think, oh, my God. I know that. They're going to fire me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when did you start becoming interested? You mentioned in your interview that you talked about countries or like islands that had appeared and then disappeared yeah so at that point were you already interested in, yeah in, in things like that so the thing that grabbed me um quite aside from uh, it's funny because when you have an idea for something you then realize oh you have all these other relevant bits of information locked away in your head and you can draw them out and link mm. it to it but the the recent thing that grabbed me was um going through google scholar looking mm. for strange um, scientific papers and i found one from the 80s and this sounds like boring and technical, but it's a great story. So in the 80s, a group of scientists became fascinated by fruit flies in Hawaii. Hawaii has a bizarre biodiversity of fruit flies. They have mm. 10% of like global variety of fruit flies, and the, but they have the land mass of 0.01%. So there's this huge diversity. Yeah. Anyway, so they tried to um, age um, these, the oldest species, the Drosophilinae, and they analyzed the hemolymph proteins in their blood and dated them to 27 million years old, which was baffling because the oldest island in Hawaii is Kauai, which is 6 million. So how did a 27 million year old come to live there, right? When the nearest landmass is 400 miles away, it's a tiny atoll. It's obviously before the time a human craft could have brought them to the island, and birds can't fly that far, rats can't swim that far. So it stumped them. And then they, they, they hit on the answer, and it was ghost islands. 27 million years ago, there was an island where these flies thrived Mm -hmm. outside of the Hawaiian chain. And then through some act of geologic violence, it disappeared beneath the waves. And like winged rats leaving a sinking ship, they moved to the next island. And then 15 million years ago, that sank and they moved on. Like islands like stepping stones with the evidence of their history just disappearing beneath the waves. And it it was such a great... I I love that so much. And it got me thinking about... Um, you know, we're always thinking about the changing face of our world, but what kinds of records are there about how the world used to be? And if there are these records, the maps is the obvious one. Um, were they ever real? Were some of the things ever really there? Yeah. Or, I mean, you do find records of um, sort of Norwegian farms and outposts, Viking outposts that are marked on 16th century maps that were just destroyed and blown up and incinerated, but they, they live only in this tiny little notation mm-hmm. on a map. So, yeah, I wanted to go out and find um, other sort of myths and, and lies and monsters and mistakes and try and imagine what the world was like to someone who lived 500 years ago when, you know, everything was darkness. You never saw beyond your own horizon. Mm-hmm. All you could see was what, when you climbed up a tree, that's as far as you knew. And there'd be dragons, right? And there'd be dragons, there'd be yeah. Dragons. Um, so, yeah, that was the idea. Um, so it's weird that it was sparked in a way by a modern scientific paper, mm-hmm. but that just shows you how, in a way, the relevance of that, um, that how it can still get your imagination going. 
how um, did you go about researching yours? Do you spend a lot of time? I know you say you, you use Google Scholar, but did you go to the British Library and other places? Oh, yeah. Like I mean, things like Google Scholar is just one of... Um, I mean, this kind of material, everyone is trying to to write things on blogs, on Twitter, like we said. And, mm -hmm. um, so you just have to go deeper and you also have to go wider than other people. Um, and usually, it's surprising actually, um, people don't necessarily read as much as they used to when there is the internet to mm -hmm. find that material for them. So if you're, like bibliographies are the best things to scavenge. Yes. So to go from bibliography to bibliography, and what you find is you're actually burrowing down into a library, yeah. finding books that if you had just looked from the outside, you would never have found this one book. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of like some of the weirdest books. So when I was researching the history of the monowheel, one-wheeled vehicles, mm -hmm. which has an amazingly uh, long history, um, I came across this book from 1869. And 1869 is the year when cycling, these these two-wheeled, one-wheeled vehicles suddenly exploded. Mm. Everyone was inventing them. When you look through the patents office, there's a huge amount of these things that the year before there was zero. Mm -hmm. So there were articles that everyone must have got the same idea. Um, but I wanted to find the one-wheeled ones. And I found a book by a gentleman called um, Firth Bottomley Firth, which is, of course, that's what people, English people were called back then. Um, and it was called The Velocipede, The History of Velocipede, How to Straddle a Saddle, Paddle and Skedaddle. <laughs> Right? <laughs> so, amazing. tiny little book. It's in the British Library. I, uh, it's a fun afternoon's read. Um, and so that was a book I could never normally have come across. And, and from that, I found the most amazing, to me, the most mm -hmm. amazing thing, which has just ended up as a footnote in Fox Tossing. Because you just try and cram it full of this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was, at the time, it suddenly makes sense. They didn't have the word cyclist. They didn't know what to call people who rode... They didn't have bicycle. Yeah. They had velocipedes. So... Um, he was talking about the debate as to what we should call people. Uh, and he said, my own humble suggestion, which I'm sure is very tongue-in-cheek, he proposed Velocipedestrianistocalistenarianologist, which is 30 letters long. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So in an alternate reality somewhere, that's what's spray-painted onto bike lanes or something. Oh, wow. It'll um, take up the whole road. Bike lanes would be much bigger. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The tiny little A4 and then a giant bike lane next yeah. to it. Um, so it's things like that. It's stumbling across books and you have to have faith that you will find them, that mm -hmm. there is so much more stuff out there than you will ever be able to find. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, so if you have a bad day, you have to, yeah, you have to be willing to sift through entire books, even if it just results in maybe one sentence or mm -hmm. one quote or one fact. Yeah. You build it like a dragon on, on your gold. You just keep yeah. accumulating. And no time is wasted, even though it yeah. might feel like that at the time. And even things you might find, even though they're not relevant to what you're writing now, might spark something later. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's that's what I was was I was going to say, is I just, on, on my computer and in my filing cabinet, I just have gigantic files of the most useless information mm -hmm. um, that you wouldn't believe. But but the funny thing is, it goes back to that idea of taking an interesting fact and thinking, what would a book be if it had this in it? Yeah. Um, and that's what can happen. You suddenly accumulate this stuff and you realise, oh, I've, you know, the obvious book to do here is this. And I've got maybe a third of the material already. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. So it's, it's weird in a way. You don't hear people telling you that the material can dictate the book. Normally people think, mm -hmm. I have to come up with the idea. Yes. And then I have to research it. But it can work in reverse. I suppose that if you're trying to give advice to somebody, the, like the, the, um, 
thought that the idea has to come first is easier to say to somebody because it's yeah. it's something that is on you, um, whereas the other one you could be searching for ages. But I think it is the most yeah. fun and the most organic way for something to happen. If you're not sure what you're interested in writing about, read. Like, people yeah. are like, how do I come up with ideas? Read. Like, it, yeah. Whether it's non-fiction or fiction, read. And some people, I first told me authors, I don't know about you, who say that they don't read. And it, I just, it baffles me. It also yeah. makes me hate them slightly. <laughs> but because um, they're saying that they don't want to be influenced by other people, but that's what writing is. Yeah, I, I, n- I never know quite how to believe people who say that. Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe they just read a huge amount As a child. in the past, mm-hmm. and, and that's shaped how they yeah. can do it, their facility. But, um, but certainly, yeah, with nonfiction, you have to read... I mean, obviously, we're talking about a specific genre here. That's, yeah. that's my genre of just quirky history, like loo books and, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff, which I think is is a rather derogatory term for this it stuff. It is. I know. was going to say, actually, I never know what to say to people <laughs> to when they say to me, really. I've got a copy of Weird Things Customs Same Bookshops in my loo. And yeah. I'm like, thank, thank, thank you. Oh, great. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, but I mean, but this, I think that people listening to this will think that this is fascinating because I find this stuff fascinating. Oh, good, so okay. it's fine. They, I, they've, yeah. you're, you're talking to the right people. All right, well, I've found my weird people. Stuff. Okay. You found you found <laughs> the people who like the weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. So just read as much as you as you can. I mean, in the short story collection that I've just finished writing, there are I start with nonfiction often, which mm. not all the time. But um, one of the short stories is is about a girl who's fascinated with the fish at the bottom of the ocean and all yeah. the weird things that live there. Um, a lot of it is inspired by uh, the history of fairy tale as well. So you you can right. you can cross genres. You don't have to be thinking I'm writing fiction. I can't include anything factual in that at all. Yeah, you you can mix it up. And and that's what um, will set you apart because uh, everyone hates reading something predictable. And mm-hmm. sticking to one genre is predictable. It's the obvious thing to do. Yeah, it doesn't matter if that's your first step, but that's where you can you can luxuriate in your imagination and say, how do I keep throwing people curveballs I mean you're talking about throwing like origins of fairy tales mm-hmm. and it's why non-fiction even if you're only interested in fiction it's why non-fiction is such a great thing to read yeah. for fun because there are stories out there that are just impossible to imagine yeah um and uh, yeah so I, an, another story that, that I remember was um before I was writing about the uh, Phantom Atlas and writing about maps I was writing about the circus the history of the circus and I wanted to find um, basically, and it's still it's still on the burner. I don't know. Is, do you advise people talking about books that they haven't got published yet, or do you sort of keep that to yourself? Well, you know? I don't think. Uh, I think <laughs> I, there's always the fear that someone's going to think that's a great idea. I'm yeah, going to oh, go write yoink. that. Yeah, but exactly. I don't think that's going to happen. So you know, do so, anything to do with the circus, please tell me. Well, so my favourite story from the circus, um, I later uh, realised was um, completely crossed over into cartography in mm-hmm. a bizarre coincidence how okay so have you heard of william leonard hunt i feel like i know that name yeah he's he's a he's a big name in in show history from about 1870 Mm. so he's canadian but he was london's answer to pt barnum right he's known as the great farini Mm -hmm. that was his more oh no yes i did okay so the great farini is credited as inventing the human cannonball Mm -hmm. act and it started when he invented just a, a, a projector where he shot his um, companion, glamorous companion Lulu, who was actually a man, his, I think, adopted son, would shoot him up into the air and he would sort of land on a, on a platform like a reverse diving board. Yeah. But he then adapted that into a cannon. 
uh, Lulu was getting on a little bit, so he needed a new assistant. So, depending on which story you read, he tricked the parents of a young German girl called Rosa Richter uh, into thinking that he was a, a sort of a dance maestro and she was going to become a world-famous dancer. And he, he stuck her in a leotard or, you know, a ballerina dress. And 13-year-old Rosa on, I think, 1877, became the first person to be shot out of a cannon at London's Royal Aquarium, 70 feet across the auditorium into a net, and it had never been achieved successfully mm -hmm. before. Um, the other times we just don't talk about. No, there are I, there are some amazing records of, uh, like, Italian acrobats that were shot out of something similar, and they just sort of collide with the balcony oh, and things like that. They survived, okay. but, you know, imagine seeing an Italian coming full force right at your balcony when you thought you had the cushy seats. Um, so... So he, he went off to America. P.T. Barnum signed them up for a staggering amount of money. They toured America. And then he got bored and he, he retired. And he retired in a way that no one usually retires. He swapped the circus, like sawdust, for the sands of the Kalahari Desert. He'd heard stories in pubs of the desert being littered with diamonds as big as your fist, just ready to just pluck. So he and Lulu mm -hmm. went out there and became the first Europeans to cross the Kalahari Desert. And they came back and presented their findings to the um, Royal Geographical Society, um, well, of which I'm a, I'm a fellow. So I mm. was very excited to find this material uh, and his original lecture. And um, there's a tiny marking on his map, and I can show you, uh, where the, the expedition was completely unremarkable. They didn't find, and of course they didn't find anything useful. Yeah. But in the, in the midst of it, he records finding a lost city the ruins of an abandoned civilization, and it's marked with a tiny red dot on his map with ruins. He returns home and is very excited and presents this, and the RGS don't bat an eyelid, because I, th I suspect because of his reputation as a showman and just yes. a, like a bullshit artist. Yeah. Um, and they were more obsessed with the fact that he hadn't found any evidence of like local water sources, which is the most important thing to find when In you're exploring desert, the yes. area. So, but what's weird is that this story then takes on a new life. It's ignored. It's like a sort of Trumpian boast and people just go, ah, whatever. And, you know. mm -hmm. and then decades later, um, a South African journalist picks it up because it's a sort of local relevance. It gets printed in the newspaper. And to this day, there are expeditions launched to find the lost city of the Kalahari. Because every lost city, as we all know, will probably contain gold. Obviously. Right? Right? We've all seen the mummy. I yeah, mean. exactly. Um, and the... the the latest record I found when I was writing a book was that in 2010 there was an expedition that must have been really well funded that scoured the air with microlights mm -hmm. looking for this lost city and no one has ever found any evidence of it. Um, but that is a story I would not have found if I hadn't been reading in a completely different area and yeah. then remembered, oh, hang on, he made a map. Yeah. So in it, in it goes. That's amazing. Because you want variety. You, want, you don't want people to keep turning the page and going, oh, another Phantom Island. Like, yeah. Great. You know. Well, can you tell us, without ruining the book, obviously, there are so <laughs> many things in the book. Uh, can you tell us some of your favourite things that are inside? In the Phantom Atlas? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, like you, I'm a sucker for monsters. Yes. Um, what is a lot of fun is there are two famous maps to do with monsters. One is, is the map that came with the Nuremberg Chronicle of 1493, mm. so ancient. Um, and with this sort of Ptolemaic projection, which is slightly sort of warped and England is sort of bent off to the right, and it was all to, it was, but it was the first time we applied coordinates, a mathematical system to the world. Um, around the edges of it is this gallery, and I was very lucky to find a coloured example 
of all the creatures, usually their sources are from antiquity. They mm. had six arms, they were uh, hirsute women, um, they're, you know, the Gorgades, um, which Christopher Columbus went off looking for. Um, but, in, but once he learned about their hairiness, he looked for the Amazons instead, which seemed like a more appealing option. Um, and what was fun is, is that from what I could find, I always hate saying no one had ever done it, you know, but yeah. from what I could find, no one had tried to trace where each story from antiquity affected these images. Whenever you saw these images, it was just, here's a gallery of monsters. Um, and so you look through um, just, you know, Ptolemy and Plato and, and, and stories from Alexander the Great, looking for references, and then I just, you know, succinctly uh, link them all up so you can find out that the chap who has a really long neck and a beak for a mouth, and you think, oh, people were so stupid back then. But in fact, it was a satirical um, sort of cartoon. It was a metaphor um, for what would make a good judge, someone who has... Uh, a long distance between his heart and his head, um, so that by the time the words come out of his mouth, he's had time to make a wise decision. Mm -hmm. So um, I always give people of the past more credit, and that's what's a lot of fun analysing monsters, is yeah. that there's a lot more to the story, generally. Um, but it's also, it was a lot of fun taking this idea and thinking, well, are there still parts of our world? Are there things on our maps that are still lies or yes. still deceiving? And well, didn't was, you say that in the BBC London map there are over a hundred streets that yeah. aren't real? And that was revealed maybe seven or eight years ago yeah. where they admitted that they do that. I mean, I think people are more aware now of copyright traps and mm -hmm. um, trap streets. Um, but it still goes on. There are alleyways marked that you won't be able to find um, through fares. Google, every now and again, has glitches and invents towns like Argleton, which popped up in the middle of a field uh, up, up sort of further north. And someone noticed it and went to investigate it, and it was just a, it was just a sort of empty grass field. Uh, and there are all sorts of theories as to how, why that might be happening, mm. you know. But um, but it's but it still happens. I mean, Sandy Island was an island off the eastern coast of Australia that was only found to be a phantom in two thousand and nine. Um, and there's islands in the Mexican Gulf that sparked an amazing story in the nineteen eighties. It was only in the nineteen eighties that um, we had tried to, for the first time, legally establish uh, what um, area of water is the um, sovereign territory of which country. So it was all sort of international waters and we didn't know who owned what and yeah. it was just who would scare you off their coast. And so in the 80s they said, right, we're going to establish the EEZ, the economic um, zone, and it's 200 miles within a country's coastline. But what that did is, with some countries that are quite close together, these bands overlapped and it created pockets of little international water that became areas of dispute mm -hmm. and this happened in the Mexican Gulf and that's when antique maps came into play someone noticed on a 1539 map that there was an island called Bermeja right in the middle of this little hole and they're called donut holes right. and this was really important because obviously the Mexican Gulf is oil rich if you can establish that you own this area, mm -hmm. you, you, you'd rake in trillions. Yeah. Um, so the Mexicans and the Americans sent out frantic expeditions searching for Bermeja to claim it, um, and no one could ever find it. But these expeditions carried on until, I think, 2010, when it was finally realized that it was a, a hoax. But even then, you find records in the Mexican Senate of people accusing the CIA of establishing hegemony by detonating it. 
and okay, destroying the entire island mm -hmm. until someone has to point out that that would take a nuclear device. And, and probably someone would have noticed. Exactly. That, yeah. that would have sort of rattled a few teacups. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the senator who proposed this was then run off the road in a mysterious uh, uh, assassination. So oh. who knows? I think, I, I think we're going to have to wrap it. We've been talking an hour. Have we really? Yeah, oh, yeah, whoops. we have. No, Sorry. no, no, I've not whoops. Not whoops. It's been really great. Is there anything that you want to say at the end of... Um, Anything specific that you yes. haven't said yet? I'd like, I'd like everyone to know, in case you didn't, that the chief UK policeman in charge of combating UK knife crime, mm -hmm. his real name is Alfred Hitchcock. No. He goes by Alf. No. You can Google it. Yeah. That was, <laughs> that was fun. That's amazing. Yeah. I was trying to think of like good QI style stuff for you. That's a pretty good one. It's good, right? <laughs> it is very good. It's very good. We're yeah. going to have to wrap it up, guys. We could talk for forever, I think. Yeah. Um, but we're going to have to wrap it up. We would love to know in the comments section what are the weirdest things that you have found out about, please. We would like to know that. So please yeah. leave those in the comment section. Um, and please go and buy Ed's books because they're so good. What are you working <laughs> on at the moment? We haven't we haven't covered that. Oh, I'm, I'm doing another atlas. It's a, it's a kind of visual history of exploration, but it's basically an excuse to make uh, the most beautiful book of maps that's ever been made. Amazing. And when yeah. is that one going to come out, do you think? Um, it's Golden Atlas should be out uh, next... Um, sort of Christmas next year. Next Christmas, okay. Yeah. All right, add it to your wish list, please. <laughs> yeah, I will remind you. you when it's out again. Oh, great, yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay, <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you for letting me come and chat to you. No, it's great. great. Yeah, it's great fun, thank you. Thank you.